We're going to get into uh, God's Word. This morning we're in Luke uh, chapter 8. This is going to be our third and final time looking at verses 26 to 39. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll get one to you. Um, again, so Matthew, Mark, Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, starting in verse 26. So I'm going to read there, uh, pray, and then we'll, we'll dive in for the morning. says this, then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. And for a long time, he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me? Jesus, Son of the Most High God, I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Let's God, quiet our hearts, quiet our minds. Quiet the constant hum of activity that we often give ourselves to. Let us be still in these moments and know that you are God. You are not anxious. You are not out of control. You are not worried about tomorrow. You are the Alpha and the Omega. You are on the throne. You are God. So whatever chaos we bring into this room today, whatever anxieties, fears, pain, suffering, whatever evil we are facing. God, we know that you are up to good in it. We know that you can come, rescue, heal, and guide all things to a good end. So I pray that you would use this sermon to encourage the hearts of your people, God. Open your word to us, we pray. In your name, we ask these things. Amen. Let me ask a question. If, as the Bible presents it, God is both all good and all powerful, Why 
is there evil and suffering in the world? I'll say it again, because the whole sermon is going to riff off of this. If, as the Bible presents it, God is both all good, omnibenevolent, and all powerful, omnipotent, why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? If God is all good, but he's not all powerful, well, that would make some sense of things. Because he wishes he could do good, and he wants to do good, but he's not able. And he's trying to make the best of a bad situation, but quite frankly, he's not fully in control. It's a little bit out of his hands. If God is all powerful, but he's not all good. Well, that would make sense of the present state of affairs and the evil that's in the world. Because it means he actually doesn't want to bring about good. And he kind of delights in watching his creatures squirm at the end of his stick. He's not all good. But to put it and ask it again, if, as the Bible presents it, God is both all good and all powerful, why is there so much evil and suffering in this world? If God has a heart to do away with it, why, and he's able to do it, why in the world is he not doing it? Why is evil and suffering still here if this is our God? We just jumped right in, just so you know. You feel that? Sorry. No time to waste here. <laughs> I realize that yeah, wasn't a very fluffy introduction. Good morning to you. It, it is a... Um, this subject within the realm of theology is what's been called uh, theodicy. It, it's actually written in your handout. I, I want you to know the word. But it comes from two Greek words, theos and dike. Theos, God. Dike, righteous. Or justice. Okay? The idea is this. How do you justify God uh, in light of the evil that's in the world. The, the dictionary puts it this way. It defines theodicy this way. It's the defense of God's goodness and omnipotence in view of the existence of evil. So theodicy is how in the world is God who he says he is if the world is the way that it is? What do you do with that? It's a problem not just for theologians to, you know, discuss back and forth and banter in their high towers. It is a problem. It is an issue. These are questions that will grip your own soul by the throat. Right? When your time comes to sit next to a loved one in their hospital bed, or when cancer, you know, comes... For you. This is not abstract theology if there ever were such a thing. This is so practical. People leave the faith because of this question. If we haven't wrestled with it yet, we will soon. Uh, you want to know how my, can I tell you how my Wednesday night went for a moment? Just listen to this. Okay, so about 6 p.m. Uh, this last Wednesday, I get a call from someone in this church who says, Hey, um, my wife's mom is in the hospital. She wasn't eating. We weren't sure what was up, so took her into the hospital. Well, they found out. 
She has cancer, and by the end of the day, they've given her two months or so to live. So, here's mom. Hi, mom. I don't feel so well. Okay, let's go to the hospital. Oh, you're dying, and I'll see you for a few more weeks. Maybe. That was 6 p.m. Then I came home, and we, um, Megan and I were getting the house ready because we were having uh, another couple from this church come over to discuss membership, leadership, church things, do some dessert or whatever. And I just kind of nonchalantly, naively kind of ask, hey, how was your week? How was your day? What's going on? We'll come to find out that the night before, around midnight, uh, one of their cousins was out on, uh, what is it, Branham Lane East, I think, just a few miles from here. And this 21-year-old boy was murdered with a broken bottle glass or something, just mangled and killed. That is as nightmarish as it gets for a mother and a father and a family to deal with, right? Well, after this couple leaves and goes home, my wife gets a text, and it's from uh, someone that we were encouraged to reach out to uh, by our, our friends back in San Luis Obispo, because um, this girl who now lives here was actually at Mandalay Bay when the shots were ringing out and the bullets were flying and people were screaming and running and dying. She was there. And she needs somebody to talk to, right? Horrifying stuff. And yet what an opportunity to get to talk about the Lord. About midnight, we're now finally going to bed. Uh, Megan's scrolling Facebook and sees uh, there in her news feed that her childhood friend just died in a car accident, killing not just him, but two others. This was a period of six hours, and this is nothing compared to what's going on in the world right now as we sit here in this room. But what do you do with a Wednesday like that? You turn on the TV, watch a few shows till you're numb and can move back into a happy place. Doesn't everything in you, if you're honest, cry out, God, what is going on? If you're all good which I believe with all my heart, and you are all-powerful, meaning you could stop this or change it. Or Why? Why does this happen? Where are you? Are you even there? Am I just talking to the air? Does that... Doesn't that sometimes rise in our hearts and our minds? Now, you might say, well, why in the world are we talking about this right now? I thought we just read Luke 8, and now we're talking about all, what is going on here. I don't see the connection with the text. Well, I want to show you right now, in case, um, in case you don't see it. No doubt, Jesus is shown to be all good in our text. He takes a man whose life has been utterly ravaged by demons and with a word drives the demons out and sets this man free. All good here. And then there's no doubt on the other side of the coin that he is all powerful in our text. I wonder if you notice the contrast that Luke draws up for us here. It's actually quite profound. He talks about how the, the townspeople um, could not contain the, 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 
uh, chaotic fury of these demons and this man. There in verse 29, he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. So there was no way of holding this man down. No one could do it. In walks Jesus, stage right, here he is. What do we see? The demons just fall. This man and the demons in him just fall. Jesus' feet. The demonic terrorists reduced to mere beggars. Let me show you verse 28, 30, 31. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. Verse 31. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. The whole scene, it's like this incredible, they know who the superior is in the room. There's no doubt in their mind. That's the whole reason for the ascription, most high God, you are higher than us, as much as they hate it. Satan tried to ascend, right? And he got thrown down. There's no doubt in their mind who is superior. If you want to torment us, you can. If you want to command us uh, to enter the abyss, you can. We're just beggars here and we're begging you. Let's go this way instead. And Jesus permits them. Now I read that and I said, That's a problem. What in the world is Jesus doing giving permission for these wicked spirits to do anything? Why is he even talking to them? Why not, if he is all good and all powerful, why not do away with them here and now for good? He doesn't need to strike a deal. They are beggars at his feet. They have to do whatever he commands. Why not torment them? Why not send them into the abyss? Why not make a full stop of them here and now? That's the problem. That's the question I'm dedicating this whole sermon to. This is just introduction in case you're wondering. Jesus, if you have such a heart for humanity as it's clear that you do, and such authority over all things as it's clear that you do, why is there still so much evil and suffering in the world? I don't want us, you guys, just so you know, Back in the very beginning when I began kind of this little mini-series on this text, I said there'll be three, but maybe two sermons because I wasn't sure I was going to go here. This is hard. But you know what? I want a church that's not afraid to un, uh, uncover or turn over the stones of Scripture. I don't want a church that glosses over the hard stuff. And it kind of goes shallow. Uh, I don't want to be afraid of what's there. Like he engages with demons here. He's relating with evil here in some way. I want to know how. It's going to be confusing for sure. As we'll see. But it's a, I want us to ask the questions. And press in and go, God, what do you mean? What's going on? And uh, And learn from him. So we're going to try to do that here today. Um, I don't think the Bible provides us with all the answers here. 
but it does provide us with a lot of help. And I've tried to organize some of this for us under three headings. First, perspectives. Second, principles. And then third, paradigms. You're approaching this issue of theodicy. God's relationship to evil somehow, because he is all good and he is all powerful. What is going on? I think this is this is helpful. Uh, perspectives, principles, paradigms. Let's dive in. First, perspectives. Um, our starting point when approaching theodicy begins with what I'm calling perspectives. Um, when trying to make sense of the problem of evil, we need to identify the perspective we are approaching the problem from. And if I could just cut straight to it, we need to be aware of our tendency to put ourselves above God in these situations and demand that he bow to our reason. We need to be aware of our temptation to kind of put God in the dock and demand he answer us for what we see as if we know better how the world ought to be run. There is this tendency in the creature to exalt itself over the creator and come at this whole situation from an utterly, terribly wrong perspective. I've said things like this before, but I will say it again. There is nothing more irrational, ironically, than the creature's assumption that he, that he can and should be able to wrap his own reason around that of his creator. Do you hear me? It is absurd that a finite little creature like myself would demand, would think that I should be able to wrap my little reason around the infinite God's reason, wisdom, understanding. It's not going to happen. If you can fill uh, a thimble with the water of the ocean, well, then maybe you can get God's wisdom into my little brain. But you can't do it. That's about as much as I can hold of God. And this, we've got to start here. We've got to start here. We must be willing to admit that mystery will always subsist at the core of our faith because creaturely limits will always distinguish us from the limitless creator. It's why back when we did some of the membership stuff, I talked about mysterious orthodoxy. How, how so much of orthodox Christianity is mysterious. Tried to explain the Trinity to me. Tried to explain the God-man to me. Tried to explain all so many things. We It's mysterious. And the moment you try to remove the mystery, you end up outside of orthodoxy into heresy. So we've got to understand here, there's going to be some mystery. I love what Eugene Peterson says on this point. He says, mystery is not the absence of meaning, but the presence of more meaning than we can comprehend. Did you hear that? Mystery in, uh, in our understanding of God and his relationship to evil does, does not mean that uh, God actually, there's not answers. It just means we can't comprehend the fullness of it. And I don't have time to do this, but if you wanted to go there later, we could. I'd love to wrap back and forth with you. But man, people try to solve this issue in a number of different ways. By saying, well, I guess God doesn't exist. Or by saying, well, there's all sorts of theories. I could show you how every possible solution to try to rid, uh, 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 get this mystery out of here just simply brings you into a thousand more mysteries that you can't answer. And so it's better that we go just where the scripture goes. We're not going to be able to solve it all the time. Now, let me uh, give you an analogy on this point. Um, Our own questioning of God is is something like uh, Levi, my, my little 10-month-old uh, questioning me. It would be like that, as if he uh, knows better, <laughs> which I think he already thinks he does. Uh, <laughs> I'll just share with you a little story. Um, 
it was actually this was hilarious. I'm this kid, I absolutely adore this boy. Um, but we were going to the park as a family, and uh, I, I thought, oh wow, we have one of those little push cars, you know, where they hold on and you scoot them along. And 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 I, I have never tried him on this yet. He's still, you know, he's figuring his way out. He's crawling now or whatever. But um, I'm like, maybe he's sturdy enough to go for it. So I put it in the back of our of our car, and we go to the park. It's um you know, maybe 5.30, it's near dinner time, we didn't just go there right before dinner, and uh, uh, I'm, I put him on there to see if he can do it, and immediately, you know, it's like he, it's like he was made for this, he's a boy, you know, he grabs a hold, and he, and he looks back at me, I'm like, we're doing it, okay, he's on, I push the kid, he loves it, he loves it, we just go around and around and around, but then of course the time comes where, hey, we, we gotta go, I am telling you, Guys, it was like, it was the scream heard around the world. It was like, <laughs> I'm serious, it was like World War III just broke out off of uh, what was Shawnee at the little park there, South San Jose. It was, it was crazy. I, 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 I tried to lift him up off of it, you know. <laughs> well, first of all, when I stopped, the moment I stopped, he, st- he started trying to do this, like get the thing to move, you know. And then when I lifted him up, I kid you not, the whole car came with him because his hands were like this. And, and he had his legs wrapped around the bike. He's not going to let go. I was like, oh, this is actually awesome. I'll, I'll drop him down. We'll do some more. You know, we'll be, we'll be late for dinner or whatever. We ended up having to get takeout because this kid. Anyways, <laughs> finally the time came where, where I, you know, it's like, Levi, we got to go, bro. I'm sorry. Here we go. And I pull him up and I, I, I pry his little fingers off and he's screaming. It's so sad because he just found his new favorite thing in life. I pull it. I pull his. I have to rip his thigh. Have you seen this boy's thighs? This was not an easy task. Okay. I had to pull his thighs off from around this thing and then put him in the car. I, he thinks, I mean, his, his whole world is falling apart. His dreams are crushed. He thinks we are the meanest parents in the world. And now everyone else in the park thinks that we're the meanest parents in the world too. He doesn't get it. He doesn't get that the sun is going down. And if we stay outside for too much longer, it's going to get cold and he's going to get sick. He doesn't get He can't wrap his little baby reason uh, around the fact that you know we actually are going to go to dinner we have another fun thing planned we're going to do together uh, beyond that you need to eat to survive kid you, you can't just play sometimes we've got to stop and do some things that are important for our survival he doesn't get that tomorrow is coming and we're going to get to do this again and I've done it almost every day since because it's so great. He doesn't get that even amongst the pain of his crushed little dreams, his parents love him and mean good for him. You might say he doesn't have the right perspective. He's putting us in the dock and we're, we come up wanting. You're mean! Okay. You're cute. One text that is particularly helpful in setting our perspective straight, and I love this, is Psalm 131. So simple. I think it's what? Three verses. This is David. This is how we begin with the problem of evil and suffering, with theodicy. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth. And forevermore. Did you hear what David said there? He essentially says, man, I know my place in the universe. I don't try to get my mind around everything that God is doing. I I don't know at all. I don't even press there sometimes. I I can't get it. But the image that he uses is so wonderful. The image of this weaned child. Because here's here's what it's like. I think this is what he's saying. 
I have tasted the goodness uh, of my mother's milk, so to speak, of, of God's goodness and his tender care. So that even when things get scary or hard, like being weaned off of that, or there's life gets a little rough and I don't understand, I've known enough of his goodness to say, it's going to be all right. He's shown me enough of who he is. I don't have to have every answer. Rather than, you know, demanding he respond, I can hope in him, is what he says. And he, he just exhorts Israel and he exhorts us to hope in this God as well. To know our place in the universe, to bow, not, not make him bow to our reason, but to bow to his. Say, all right. You are all good. You are all powerful. How it all works together, I don't know. But I hope in you. I trust you. You know, it's awesome because um, as I brought out that little push car again for Levi, and we've done it these other days. You know, World War III, that, we never had a World War Four or five. He, he started to get it. He started to trust. He started to realize, you know, in that little instance at least, that he'd get another time to do it, another chance. He started to understand that mommy and daddy love him and might know just a little bit more about this world than he does. But this is where we begin then. We begin with, I am the creature, you are the creator. Or as Job puts it in Job 40 verse 4, Behold, I am of small account, I lay my hands on my mouth. The whole point of Job is to get him to the right perspective in many ways. Now, second, principles. So we've talked about, in many ways, what we can't know. You're like, that wasn't helpful. Thanks a lot, Nick. Now we're going to talk about some things that we can know, because God is wonderfully gracious to us, and he does reveal many things to us. Calvin says uh, that it's almost like God in the scriptures comes down and lisps, or he uses baby talk with us. So he... He, he does give us things that he wants us to know, but no, our brains aren't going to understand everything. We're little babies. So now I want to look at what does he say? I want to flesh out some principles uh, from the scriptures, five in particular, and I'll show you uh, initially how they are even derived straight out of our text. Now remember, we're not going to know how all these fit together exactly, but we do know that they they are true. First, I got to go through these quickly, so uh, I don't mean to stress you out, but we are going to have to move. First, God is not the author of evil. God is not the author of evil. Our text makes this abundantly clear. Jesus is not the author of the evil that this demonized man has been experiencing. Jesus has not done this. His signature is not at the end of this. This is not his work. He's come to undo the works of the devil, to destroy the works of the devil, as we looked at a few weeks ago. To contradict this stuff. This is not his stuff. He's not the author of it. He's not the author of it. If you want to know what he is the author of, you read to the end of the story. And you realize, man, he's the author of salvation. Not of evil. James puts it this way. James 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And then he goes on in verse 16 and 17 and says this. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. John sums this whole image up for us actually quite well in 1 John 1, 5 when he says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. No darkness there. He is light. He is not the source, not the author, not the origin of evil in the world. But, Principle number two, God does allow evil. 
That is perhaps the most troubling principle of all and the one that most evades our understanding. But nonetheless, it's the clear implication of our text. I don't know what permission Jesus gave them permission means. Okay, I won't torment you. Okay, I won't send you into the abyss and confine you, lock you up now. Okay, I will permit what you ask. I don't know how else to read that. He does, in some sense, allow evil. The demons beg and he allows or permits. So whatever evil the devil schemes in his own wicked heart, he needs God's permission to even attempt it. Now this is the devil's will, the demon's will. They're scheming, they're evil, not God's. But he does allow it. Read Job 1. Read Revelation 20. And tell me how you can come to any other conclusion. And when you want to start pointing fingers at God, go back to Psalm 131 with me. And get perspective. I don't know everything. <laughs> like I think I did. I'm Levi on a push car right now. God is not the author of this evil, but he does allow it. Principle three. These are all going to build, in case you didn't notice. Whatever evil God does allow, he guides to a good and glorious end. This man in Luke 8 becomes an undeniable trophy of God's grace only because... In some mystery of providence, he was first permitted to be a victim of the devil's malice. That's rough to say. But the joy he knows now on the far side of this trial, the glory he can bring God on the far side of this trial, is millionfold to what it would have been if the trial had never come. You remember that scene in John's gospel where there's a guy, I think he was born blind, and the disciples are like, man, this guy must have sinned real bad. And Jesus goes, no way. He's like this so that I could display glory right now. See. And the guy just rejoices, and God is glorified. And this stuff that seems so hard, God guided to a good and glorious end. This is the meaning of probably everyone's favorite verse in the Bible, Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. We love that. And we live there. And Paul won't let us Uh, miss what he means by all things. That God is guiding all things to a good end. He won't let us miss what he means there. He means all things, even horrible things. Which is why he goes on in verses 35 to 37 and says this, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Horrible things. But then he, can, then he concludes, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. All things to good, even horrible things. Guiding. He's got a plan. Whatever evil and suffering God permits in your life, brother, sister, as horrible as it is, and God weeps with those who weep. He cries over Lazarus' tomb moments before he raises him from the dead. 
Even though he knows his plan is good and glorious. He weeps. He knows it hurts. You got to know that God loves you more than you can even conceive. And he will guide all things to a good and glorious end for you. Until finally, principle four, on the last day, God will triumph over all evil and do away with it forever. God is not the author of evil, but he does permit it. And whatever he allows, permits, he guides to a good and glorious end until the last day when he will triumph over all evil and do away with it forever. This day is coming. Even the demons know it. Um, Our text says, well, they beg Jesus not to torment them there in verse 28. Matthew records it this way. Have you come here to torment us before the time? It's Matthew 8, 29. Have you come? What are you doing tormenting us before the time? What does that mean? Before the time when it's on, when all of this ends, there will be a day, there is a day set in God's plan where it's over for evil and suffering once and for all. These demons know it. They're referring to Revelation 2010, what we read there when it talks about how God will throw the devil and his entourage into the lake of fire and sulfur where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. He will do away with evil forever and ever. And it's interesting, even in our text, um, even though Jesus permits, on the one hand, he permits these demons to enter these pigs, um, what he's really doing is giving us a foreshadow of this last day. He doesn't want us to think that the devil's just roaming free. Because what do we see? But they enter the pigs, and where did they go? They run, what does it say there in I'm going to actually read it to you. Verse 33. They rush down the steep bank, these pigs do, and into the lake. There's a lake of water for you now. There's a lake of fire for you soon. You will be destroyed in the end. Principle five, and this is the last of these, in the meantime, so what do we do with this? Where are we in the midst of this? Why is all this going on? What's the point? In the meantime, we must count God's patience as salvation. In the meantime, we must count God's patience as salvation. Peter says that God is postponing this last day of final judgment. Because on the day he condemns all evil spirits, he will also have to condemn all evil men. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Second Peter 3.9 People are going to come saying, God's not returning. Are you kidding me? Peter says, yes, he is. The reason why he hasn't yet is because he wants more to be saved. That's why he comes out in verse 15 and says, count the patience of our Lord, therefore, as salvation. And this is interesting because this is where God always takes people who ask the question, why? Why are you not doing away with evil and suffering now? Why? It's where he always takes them. It's pretty amazing, actually, when you think about it. The disciples, after Jesus has risen from the dead and he's about to ascend there in the beginning of Acts, they say, man, is this the time when you're going to bring in the kingdom? 
Let's do this. Let's bring the kingdom. Now, let's get rid of the enemy. Let's get rid of the opponents. Jesus looks at him and he says this in uh, Acts 7 to 8. It is not for you to know, mystery. Times are epics which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. In other words, if that time is not yet, then it's time for witness. Go. (laughs) See how he redirects their question. Why? Let's get the evil gone. Let's do that. He said, no, I want to save evil people. Don't you get it? If I bring the end in now, no one gets saved. I want the gospel to go. In Revelation chapter, I think it's 7, 6, 9 through 11 there, um, the martyrs are under the altar in heaven. And they're crying out the same exact question. What? When are you going to take judgment or take vengeance on those who killed us? When are you going to do away with evil, God, and the suffering that marks this world so horribly? They were killed for their witness. And they want God to put an end to all this. And he essentially looks at me and says, not yet. I'm not going to wrap this up. This is actually what he says. I'm not going to wrap this whole, you know, this whole part of human history up until more have died just like you, bearing witness to the gospel. This isn't some morbid thing like God wants a certain body count. It's not what it's about. It's about, I want more to go with the gospel because I want more, my, my, my patience is salvation. He always takes us to the same spot. In the meantime, we count his patience as salvation. That's really the climax point of our text back in Luke, is it not? I mean, where does this thing end? But with this demoniac who's now healed and restored, told to return and declare, like we talked about last week, go tell others. I didn't make a full end of the demons and of evil because I didn't want to make a full end of this city. I want to save this city. Go! See it? Is there mystery here? Yes. But here's what the Bible tells us clearly. Am I going too long? I'll I'll end it here quickly. (sighs) Paradigms. We've got perspectives, principles, now paradigms. You might not know what a paradigm is. A paradigm is an outstandingly clear or typical example of something. It is a, um, you could say, a model or a grid or a lens through which you can view a certain reality and make sense of it. Okay? So in the case of, of how God relates to evil, a paradigm uh, is something that will help us. It's an example of God doing this somewhere uh, where we can look at that and it will help orient us in the midst of what feels horrifyingly chaotic and disorienting. Like my mom's dying in the hospital. Where's God? Go to, we're looking for paradigm here. What is he doing in the midst of this? Like my cousin died on Branham Lane East. Where is God in that, like, shots were just fired in Mandalay Bay. Where in the world is God in these horrible situations? Who can make sense of such disorienting realities? A a paradigm, essentially, a good paradigm here is going to take our five principles and put them on clearest display so that in the midst of the chaos we can navigate and take steps forward. The Bible actually provides us with countless paradigms to this end. You, you might think of Joseph. Remember him? How what all, what all these brothers, all of his brothers schemed for evil against him and throwing him in a pit and thought a lot of he was left for dead. God meant for good. God was up to something even in the midst of it. He wasn't the author of it. He did allow it. He guided it to a good end and he used it for the salvation of his people. You might think of, uh, I don't want to give you too many. Of course, you might look at Job and how Satan comes in with, with malintent for this man. And yet God, by the end of it, uses it to double his blessing. 
He takes Satan's energy and uses it against him, almost like those good martial arts guys I think are taught. It's incredible. Of course, you might think of this demoniac here in Luke 8, but far better still would be to look at the cross. The cross of our Savior. There is no clearer picture. These principles are not more clearly put on display. There is no better paradigm than the cross of our Lord. Where God takes the most horrific event in human history and he uses it to save the world. He takes the darkest event in human history and he makes it the brightest display of his glory. He takes evil, suffering, and all that it has to offer, and he turns it into our salvation. And the means of us, sinful people, getting right with God. It's it's interesting because no one saw what God was up to. There was so much mystery in those moments. People thought it was over, right? No one got it. Everyone would have pointed the finger. God said, man, what are you doing? If this is the Messiah, you are a horrible God. So you treat your kid. Are you kidding me? They're giving up. Even Jesus, it would seem, is not a stranger to theodicy. And the question, why? What is that as he hung there on the cross? My God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? What is that but a struggle with this very issue? Why evil and suffering? This is, this is so hard. So where is God in the face of such horrendous evil? Well, the paradigm of the cross puts it on clear display. He is not the author of it, but he is allowing it, and he is guiding it to a good and glorious end, more glorious than we could ever imagine, and soon he will do away with it forever, and his patience in the meantime is salvation. So I don't know. I don't know what evil and suffering you are facing today or will face this week by the permission of God. But I do know he is up to good in it for you. I'm going to throw yourself at the foot of the cross and tell me he can't make good of your situation if you made good there. Let's pray. God, we... God, I just pray that somehow in the midst of discussing all that, that it didn't get lost in translation. I pray that you would use your word and you would use our time to orient your people in what is often so disorienting and such a struggle. There is no making light of evil and suffering. But there is a God who is above it and is going to get us through it. And we thank you for that. Lord, we gather around the cross together and we thank you for that. It's in your name we pray. Amen.